It sounds very complex, you know. Um. <laughs> no, you're going to love it. I don't want you to sound half-hearted. <laughs> hey, readers, I'm Ann Bogle, and this is What Should I Read Next, episode 173. Welcome to the show that's dedicated to answering the question that plagues every reader. What should I read next? We don't get bossy on this show. What we will do here is give you the information you need to choose your next read. Every week, we'll talk all things books and reading and do a little literary matchmaking with one guest. Readers, I want to share this email I got from Sean just a little while after recording last week's episode with him. He writes, I am so thankful for the suggestion of On Writing by Stephen King. It was a book I had on my radar and had planned to read, but the suggestion from Anne definitely urged me to go ahead with it. I neglected to talk about it on the podcast because it was only an idea and maybe a few hundred words at the time, but I have recently begun writing a novel on top of the two children's book projects I did mention. And since I began reading on writing, it has just made me more excited about writing. I'm still only 3,500 words into writing this one, but I am very happy with it so far. I had checked out On Writing from the library shortly after recording and began reading it late last week. Over the weekend, my sister-in-law was visiting from St. Louis, and since we were not able to see her over Christmas time, we exchanged gifts this past weekend. She laughed as she gave me mine, and when I opened it to see a new copy of On Writing, I knew why. She had no idea it was one of my recommendations from Anne, so I guess great minds do think alike. I was able to get copies of Sleeping Giants and Underground Airlines as well, and will begin one of them when I finish On Writing. Still need to pick up a copy of Second Sight from somewhere, but it is, as Anne said, it may be a harder one to find. Anyway, just wanted to tell you, Anne, and everyone involved with What Should I Read Next, another great big thank you for having me on the show, and I cannot wait to hear the episode. Readers, if you have not heard that episode, go check it out now. It is live. It is called How Many Rereads is Too Many Rereads, and you will hear why. And Sean, thanks again for coming on the show. It was a delight to talk books and reading with you. Readers, after a year of focusing on reading over 100 books while recovering from a running injury, today's guest, Natalie Van Wanning, is sprinting enthusiastically toward many readers' worst nightmare, long books. And when I say long, I mean use them as a doorstop, tweak your wrist getting them off the shelf, 40 hours on Audible, books. Natalie asked me to help her focus on quality instead of quantity, so I'm all geared up to recommend sweeping multi-generational sagas, tour guide novels, and heart-tugging family stories. Let's get to it. Natalie, welcome to the show. Hi, Anne. When you wrote us, it was from a place of, is it fair to say, readerly triumph? I would say so. Um, You know, I had this goal last year that I was going to read 100 books, and it's not like I was like a... 30 or 40 book a year reader in the past, I think I'd gotten close. Like one year, four years ago, I remember I, I read 90 books. The last couple years, it's 70, 80. And I just never hit that 100 mark. I'm kind of a goal-oriented person. And so I wanted to really challenge myself to read 100 books. Some people think that it's just a number, but you said goal-oriented. Does that give us some clue as to your motivation? We all have different passions in our life. And one of my passions used to be, and I'm kind of coming back to it, but I was a huge runner. I've run a handful of marathons, a handful of half marathons, a couple triathlons, a half Ironman. And then I unfortunately had a knee injury that really put me back. And I lost that kind of goal and planning for training 
the year that I read 90 books was actually the year that I had knee injury and then surgery. Books are a huge therapy, I'll say, um, for times of trouble for me. And so I read the 90 books that year. I used to blog uh, a lot about running, my running life. And then when the running went away, I was like, oh, I'm probably going to just have to stop blogging. I really switched it over to more writing about what I'm reading and what I want to, you know, share with other people, the good reads, the bad reads, my opinion, of course. And so from there, I like the thought process of trying to find the right books. I've actually grown up a little and I am okay putting down books now that I don't (laughs) like. That was hard for me. I think I was kind of a finisher. And so for some reason, I would really slog through some books. And and you've talked about this. Sometimes staying with those really not good for us books can really bring down our reading life. And I, I would agree with that. Um, I'm getting back to running because I've gone through physical therapy and I'm kind of getting my body back in shape. But the books were really a great transition period for me in a time of not fun injury. So, Oh, I'm happy to hear that. Yeah. Now that you had your 100 book year, it sounds a little hyperbolic to say, is it everything you've dreamed of? But really, Natalie, how did, how did it feel and how might it change things going forward, knowing that you can do it? That doesn't necessarily mean you want to do it again, I'm thinking. You know, I ended up reading 118 books and 37 of them were audio. That's a lot of audio books. Yeah. And despite being injured, I'm still walking and working out. I have a commute in the morning. It's not super long. But those minutes actually add up. And then when I get to work, I walk into work and it's a little walk. So I just started walking and listening when I'm home alone, doing laundry, doing those tedious chore things. The thing I struggled a little bit with the audio for a while, and again, this is another maturity thing. Purists might say, oh, well, then you really didn't read 100 books. I was talking to someone about the whole audiobook and, oh, did I really, you know, meet my goal? And she said, you know, my daughter has dyslexia. Her reading is through audio. So yes, you have read 37 books. And that really opened my mind to, wow, we need to stop being judges of uh, if that counts as a read. And then as you probably know, and many of the listeners know, some books that maybe some of us would pick up and read in hard copy Definitely, maybe we'd put down, but on audio, the reader's voice or the way the audio presents itself in the story is much more enticing and interesting than maybe that hardcover book. So I think it's doing a great service, getting more people to read, getting some books that may not be enjoyed as a hard book read is actually more enjoyable in audio form. Oh, this is so funny. I was just talking about this yesterday, Natalie. There's a researcher at the University of Virginia who has done a lot of research into learning styles specifically, but his work has caused him to spend a lot of time looking at how different readers process audiobooks. So he wrote this great blog post. We'll put it in show notes. It's called, Is Listening to an Audiobook Cheating? And he kicks off with, I've been asked this question a lot and I hate it. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Your brain thinks it's the same. So it's the same. You're reading a book. It's not cheating. Count it with confidence in your reading logs, listeners, and rant. What a disservice we're doing to people who that is how they read. So how dare we judge that that's not reading a book? 
Right. And for those listeners whose ears are perking up right now, we had a great episode last year with a middle schooler named Ben Huntington. Oh, yeah. That was great. We talk about his dyslexia and his personal love of audiobooks in episode 134. So many readers appreciate audiobooks. And then just to be able to allow people who struggle with the mechanics to still enjoy the story is such a bonus. So I'm glad you brought that up. And audiobook listenership is definitely on the rise and not just among those who have running injuries. (laughs) You're trendy, Natalie. I read someone had like, how do you increase your reading, you know, reading life? How do you get more reads in in a year or something like that? And one of the examples was via audio. I just made the switch to serious audiobook listening for the first time since really we moved into our first house and we were painting all the walls and we listened to audiobooks on CDs from the library, but then I didn't listen to them for eight or 10 years. I thought I'd rather listen to upbeat music when I ran, but then I probably had a similar experience to you. I realized if I'm running eight miles, and it has been years since I've run eight miles at a go, but if I am, that is a whole, whole lot of pages. And I thought I can get used to running to this instead of to music if I can get all those extra chapters in. The one thing I did find interesting, and I I would say this still kind of holds true, I found that I probably started more with nonfiction and memoirs, somewhat struggled a little with some of the fiction. And I don't know why that is. I don't know if um, the nonfiction was more concrete. If you're listening to like a ton of French mystery, you can't just be kind of off in La La Land. You kind of have to pay attention to what's going on. So sometimes I feel like the nonfiction and memoir is easier for me to listen to on audio than sometimes the fiction. That's so interesting. I hear listeners say that a lot. However, that is not my experience. And if you're listening, it won't necessarily be yours. I, I kind of get bored with nonfiction that's instructive, where I'm reading it because I want to learn something. I do love memoir uh, because it unfolds like a story in the same way that a good novel unfolds like yes. a story. Yep. So if you are trying to get into audiobooks and one genre isn't working for you, try a different one. My other big piece of advice is if you have trouble concentrating, I think a lot of us intuitively think, oh, that means I should slow it down. But I actually find that when listeners try speeding it up, their mind is less likely to wander because you have to pay attention or you're going to miss it. Have you found any tips and tricks that have helped you? My all-time favorite book I have read twice and I decided before this podcast I was going to listen to it because I had never listened to it. And it's a rather lengthy book and uh, I'm getting back into the running and just going to the gym. And so I thought that's great. And I tried to speed it up, but it takes place in the South. The voice just <laughs> sounded so not, it, it, I couldn't do it, Anne, because you needed to hear that Southern voice. And when you did, you know, 1.25 times faster, you lost some of that. Uh, I'm listening to Rick Bragg on audio right now. So I am 1000% tracking with you. I have a good friend who listens to her her books like 1.5 or something. I mean, really fast. And she's kind of like that witty, super smart, quick thinker. And she had a construction guy at their house doing work. He's like, oh, are you learning a different language? (laughs) She's like, no, this is a book on tape that's just in fast forward mode. Oh, that's so funny. I love Jeff Speck, who writes nonfiction, and I haven't listened to his books on audio, but he did. He wrote in the introduction to his last book, Walkable City Rules, that he used to travel the country to speak about his book, Walkable City. 
he recorded the audiobook himself. And for whatever reason, he downloaded it and found that listening to himself talk about the topic he was about to present on in his own words on airplanes was really soothing and helped him relax. (laughs) But he said in the process, he actually memorized giant portions of the book, which made him a much better presenter. And I just really loved the visual of him listening to his own words to help him relax. I just thought that was so fun. Can you think of a book that has been extra enjoyable on audio as opposed to on the page? I picked this book up. It's called Before We Were Yours by Lisa Wingate. And it was on the new shelf at our public library. And so I just kind of read like the first chapter to see, oh, is this something I'm going to like? And I remembered I was getting ready for a trip. So I decided, you know what, I'm going to just see if they have this through our Overdrive Express, which a lot of libraries have something similar where you can just check out audiobooks um, as if you're checking out a regular hardback book. They did have it on audio. I had read the first chapter and it was great writing, but I loved it on audio because it takes place in the South. And I think if I hadn't listened to it, I would have lost the whole like theatrical experience of the story. And it's a hard story. I thought it was so lovely, if that is a word that can be used with a hard story, on audio. And I think if I had read the book, it would have still been a great story and a great book, but I gave it five stars. And I think that extra star was because I listened to it. I felt like I could envision the whole setting and it could have been like a play on stage. And I don't know if I would have gotten that if I had stayed with the hardback. Well, I read this book in the hardcover and the way you're describing it sounds amazing. I can see how that'd be really good because The setting is so important in a story like that. And I think the narrator's voices just really help you feel like you're there and you get the characters and you understand who they are in a way that you have to work for harder on the page. Absolutely. I'm so glad you enjoyed it. Now that you've read your 100 books, which actually became 118, did you say? Yeah. This year, your challenge is going to be a little different. One thing that I I kind of struggled a little bit with is when you give yourself a goal, like 100 books, you got to be reading a lot. I read great books. I mean, it wasn't like I was just going through the library and, okay, this is under 150 or 200 pages. Let me pick that one. I mean, Mm -hmm. I read some long books, but I felt like at the end of the year, did I enjoy it? Did I really feel good and have that warm, happy reading feeling? And I, I did feel good. But I wanted to kind of get away from always feeling like, okay, well, then this year I got to read like 125. Like, I don't want to feel like I'm a, you know, a factory worker that's just going through books to say that I've read them. So this year I was kind of thinking, one, I have this to be read, both physical (laughs) shelf and my Goodreads is out of control. And I have books that I didn't pick up to read because they were lengthy. I've always wanted to read The Count of Monte Cristo, and that's a long book, or Prayer for Owen Meany. That's not a one-day read. I'm not that fast of a reader. I kind of wanted to do something different this year, either look at what classics have I not read, and then what epic novels or longer-length books have I not read that I could look at and then be okay with, it's probably going to take you more time, and I'm going to be okay with that because my goal will still be I'm reading first and foremost. And then secondly, I'm going to be reading books that I've been meaning to sit down with, but maybe haven't given the time that I desire and that they really respect. 
Do long books hold a specific appeal for you? Some readers enjoy long books, not just because then you just have to decide once what to read next and you're good for 900 pages, but also because a story unfolds in a different way when it has that kind of space to do it in. When I was putting my three favorite books together, I kind of psychoanalyzed, oh, what is this saying about my reading life? (laughs) But I do like epic stories. I don't mind flashbacks. I don't mind two different protagonists living in two different settings. And so I think with longer books, you have that ability for that like richness of multiple family epic saga. Mm -hmm. Or you have the ability to transverse time. Also, secretly, I think it's like a badge of honor. Like I haven't read the Outlander series yet and people talk about it, but they say, oh, but it's real. They're really long books. That doesn't scare me. That appeals me if if it's good writing. Natalie, when you say long books, what kind of page count do you have in mind? To me, long books are you're getting into the 550, 600, 700, 900 page. I don't know if I've ever read a 900 page book. Some people may say, oh, 550, that's nothing. That's not a long book. Well, I hear what you're saying. And yet 550 pages could totally be two complete books side by side. Like I'm in a book club and some of our readers, we call ourselves the bookies. Some of the bookies don't. (laughs) Seeing a book, even 440, 475, it kind of makes them a little nervous. So I don't know. I I don't have a specific page count. I don't know. What do you think is a long book? Okay. So a typical debut is generally around 300 pages for fiction. It's very unusual for a new author to have a book come out that's significantly longer than that. There are glaring exceptions but they are exceptions to the general rule of about 300 pages. So I think once you get to 450, I start considering it long. Not super long, but definitely on the long side. And I consider six or 700 pages. That's a long book. Is that really what I want to put in my tote bag right now? Am I really going to carry that around in my purse? Do I really want to lug that to the beach? At about the 600 page mark, I start thinking about that. Well, I read uh, The Heart's Invisible Furies last year. That's a long book. And I remember starting that and being a little nervous because I read it earlier in, you know, this goal of reading 100 books. My One of the bookies gave me the book and said, oh, Natalie, it won't feel like a 582-page book. And it really didn't. And so I think that's the thing that, unfortunately, for some of us, do we steer away from books because of that page length when I've read some 250 page books that feel like they're 500. (laughs) Slogging painfully. Right. Where some of the books that we might talk about today is potential reads for you. I've gone back after I've read them and gone, wait, that was 600 pages. I had no idea. I feel like I just flew through it because I couldn't wait to find out what happened next. Yeah. Look at the Harry Potter series. I mean, there are kids that have read Harry Potter. I mean, my son's one of them. He's read the whole series at least twice, but book four and book seven, he's read several times. Those aren't short books. No. And once they started selling, they let her turn in whatever page count she wanted to. Right. Well, Natalie, I can't wait to hear about your books. Are you ready to dive in? I sure am. Well, you know how this works. You are going to tell me three books you love, one book you don't, and what you're reading now. And we will talk about some of those longer books you may enjoy reading next. Okay. So the first book I'm going to talk about is probably my all-time favorite book. It's Beach Music by Pat Conroy. I read it first in my probably early 20s. 
And then I read it again in my 30s. And then right before this podcast, I listened to it and now I'm in my 40s. So very happy to find that I still love this book. It is a book about multiple people. The main character is Jack McCall. And I'm not giving anything away. Um, You find it out very early on. Um, His wife has committed suicide, um, Shyla. The first time I read the book, I thought it was more about the history of the Holocaust because that is talked about. This last time I listened to it, I was just amazed at how many different topics Pat Conroy hit on. There is a lot of mental health. There's a lot of unfortunate talk about physical abuse and verbal abuse to children. The last time I listened to it, I was just amazed at how Pat Conroy had this ability to package them so nicely into this beautiful story, ultimately about friendship and love and family. What keeps you coming back to this one, Natalie? You know, I think when I first read it in my early 20s, it really sat with me that it was a love story. Like I said, I was a little nervous to listen to it because I'm like, oh, what if I don't like it as much anymore? What if I think this isn't good? And, you know, am I going to have to change my picks? And, but it was so, um, it was so refreshing. And, you know, I think, I apologize. I, I can't remember if he passed away last year or the year before. We definitely lost an amazing author. I mean, I feel so blessed that he, he took up a pen and started writing and, His storytelling is really, it's just really true. And it's not like he ties everything up at the end with a nice pretty bow on every story. It's great reading and makes me feel um, happy about the fact that I picked this book up almost 20 years ago and, and am still reading it and loving it. All right, Natalie, now you've got to follow that up. My next book is Middlesex by Jeffrey Eugenides. And I read this, I think it was in our second year of book club. This book still to this day, I think is one of my all-time book club picks. It's about this girl, Callie, who then becomes Cal. But I thought it was so much more about the story of family. And again, it kind of has this multi-layered era. I did write down, I thought this was a great intro to the book. Jeffrey writes... I was born twice, first as a baby girl on a remarkably seamless Detroit day in January of 1960, and then again as a teenage boy in an emergency room near Petoskey, Michigan in August of 1974. And I think that is a perfect couple line sentence about where the story is going to go. Mm-hmm. But really, it starts with great grandparents back, this Greek family. And their migration from Bursa, which I had to look up, it's a city in Asia Minor, in like the 1920s, they moved to the U.S., end up in Detroit, Michigan. And then you flash forward and Cal's life in Detroit, finally ending in San Francisco. I thought it was a very interesting story. And it, again, has multi-layers of topics in it. I did read that he, the author, had done some research and found out about this autosomal recessive condition called 5-alpha reductase deficiency. And he uses that in the storyline to really kind of explain why Cal is the way he is. 
So you said that you weren't afraid of a multi-generational family saga and you're two for two so far. Neither book is short either. I know. I know. I was kind of like psychoanalyzing that. I told you, Ian. <laughs> I think I like those multi-layered stories. I mean, I think if Jeffrey had nothing about the grandparents, it wouldn't be the winner of a book it is. Okay. So if we can use the word sweeping, your ears are going to perk up. I think so. Are we going to see this in your third book? Does the theme continue? The third book is kind of a different book because I was introduced to the author Fiona Davis last year for the first time. And the first book I read was her book, The Address. I think I listened to The Dollhouse and then I read The Masterpiece. I will continue to read anything she produces. So The Address is about two young ladies. And this is what I really like about what Fiona Davis does because in the three books I've read by her, she always kind of has two protagonists, one from the current day of her book. In the address, the current day book is in the like mid-1980s, and the girl's name is Bailey Camden. And Bailey's gotten out of rehab, and she is trying to kind of restart her life. Melinda, her cousin, kind of decides, hey... Bailey was previously an interior design person before she got in trouble with drugs and alcohol. Hey, I'm going to give you a gig. I'm going to have you redo my apartment in the building called the Dakota. And the Dakota is very well known for several reasons, but the Dakota was where John Lennon was shot. So that's kind of like 1980s current story going on. Bailey's trying to get her life together. She's trying to design her cousin's apartment. And then meanwhile, you have Sarah Smythe from 1884, kind of, and Sarah Smythe is just a strong lady trying to manage this apartment. And there's some events that go awry. But the magical thing about all of this is I just went to New York City for the first time in my life. I took my two kids for spring break I was listening to this book in tandem with that trip, and it just brought to light the amazing um, New York City architecture. And then I went on to read her other two books, which all take place in New York City. You know, I think if you're going to go to New York City, read these books because it just it makes it such a more magical place. Because we know that you like history and context. Yes. And I mean, you know, her last book, The Masterpiece, is about the old art school that was in Grand Central Terminal. After being to New York City and walking into Grand Central Terminal with my kids and seeing the amazing architecture and the huge American flag hanging down and the cool lights and read the story and you're like, oh my gosh, I was there. I totally know what she's talking about. And it's like she's tourist writing for New York City. I have been very impressed with her ability to interweave a story from 1884 and 1985. I think that's a great writing ability that many writers probably couldn't pull off. Natalie, tell me about a book that wasn't for you. Mrs. Dalloway by Virginia Woolf. I really don't remember a ton of it, but I remember thinking I am not a highbrow lit person because I didn't get why people thought this book was so amazing. The train of thought was all over the place. The main character, Clarissa Dalloway, seems so fake and uninteresting. And I didn't get what people read and thought this was so magical. I did find it interesting that 
when I was um, kind of reminding myself about what the book was about, I looked it up. Her writing was compared to Ulysses by James Joyce. And we tried reading that book for book club and only one of the bookies finished it. I mean, it was like out of control. Like, what is this person writing? (laughs) I mean, one of the bookies went out and got like some cliff notes to help her understand what James Joyce was writing about. So I think you want books where... The action doesn't just happen internally. You, you want things to happen to people that you can see. I think so. I mean, it was interesting, you know, Mrs. Dalloway, there have been movies made. And you know the movie The Hours? Mm-hmm. I liked that movie. I got that movie. I did not get Mrs. Dalloway. And I know The Hours isn't Mrs. Dalloway, but it reflected. Well, in a film, you can't have that internal action. It has to become something that you can see happening. Yeah, you're right. Okay, that, that's a that's a theory we're going to work on. Okay. Natalie, what are you reading right now? I understand it has to do with a pretty special reading world holiday. So I just finished a book called Climbing the Stairs by Padma Venkatraman. This is the third year I participated in Multicultural Children's Book Day. It's been going on for six years. Their mission is to raise awareness of the ongoing need to include and increase, really, kids' books that celebrate diversity, not only in homes, but also at schools, and get them out on the bookshelves. And so I started three years ago. They sent me a children's picture book, and it was called Poems of the Week. One page, the poem was in English. The next page, the poem, you know, kind of mirrored was in Spanish. The illustrations were amazing. And then the YA book they sent me last year was called Ahimsa, and it took place in India. Interestingly enough, Climbing the Stairs also takes place in British-occupied India during World War II, and it follows a young lady, Vidya, really brings to light the caste system, Mahatma Gandhi's nonviolence. And then you add World War II to the mix. It was a great book, really appropriate for, I think, seventh and eighth grade and then early high school. Very well done. All right, Natalie, let's talk about your books. You loved Pat Conroy's Beach Music, Jeffrey Eugenides' Middlesex, and The Address by Fiona Davis. Absolutely. Two of those are sweeping family sagas. And the other is more a... uh, I, I tell people it's like historical mystery fiction. Oh, that's a great way to put Fiona Davis. She has these historical mysteries that unfold on two different timelines. And there are other authors who do that and do that well. So we may get into that too. That would be great. The literary tourism aspect is not lost on me. You want to go to Italy. You want to see more of the South. You went to New York City while you were reading the book, and that was amazing. I think it's really interesting that reviews on many Pat Conroy novels, especially the earlier books by critics, call them overwrought and overwritten. And, but you love that, which is something I'm definitely going to keep in mind as we choose books. And I do think that that's more a critical opinion that there's plenty of readers who love Conroy for exactly the reasons you mentioned. But I just want to keep in mind that right here, it only matters what you think. And Mrs. Dalloway just didn't do it for you because nothing happened. I love that you are good with long books and your definition of long is long, like 600, 700 pages, none of this 450 pages stuff. <laughs> okay. There are so many good options. You can give me as many as you want. <laughs> this is like Christmas day for me. <laughs> we are going to start with a multi-generational family saga. 
Have you read Pachinko by Min Jin Lee? No. I really like this for you because the word sweeping totally applies. This is the story of four generations of a 20th century Korean family, but it's set during the time when Japan annexed Korea in 1910. And that's the part of the story that a lot of contemporary um, readers in Iowa, where you are, and Kentucky, where I am, don't know about. But it was hugely influential in the country's political history, but also the way it impacts these individual lives could not be overstated. And Lee portrays that in such a way that you feel in the gut. I think you like that in your stories. She shows this by zooming way in close on one Korean family that's struggling with the normal things of life, relationships and getting food on the table and having safety. But there's also all this cultural change happening and the political situation is dicey and they are being fiercely discriminated against by the Japanese who have come into their country to take over. So I like that this is a little explored period of history. It shows many generations, each struggling in their own way. It shows a period of great change, but it's also great fodder for fiction just because there's so much happening. And I know you like it when a lot happens. And it is not even pushing past the 500 page mark, but it's so close and it looks thick enough, I think. How does that sound to you? It sounds right up my alley. If you like the sound of that, Or if listeners, you've read Pachinko and you want something else that scratches that same itch, there's a new book coming out by Lisa C. It's called The Island of Sea Women. It's coming out March 5th in 2019. I'm sorry, Natalie. It comes in at like 385 pages right around, but it would be such an interesting companion to Pachinko. Or, I mean, forget it. You could go straight to Lisa C. It also is set during the time period leading up to and during the Korean War. The story opens in the contemporary day, and then we see what has unfolded for decades prior in a series of flashbacks. But it's called The Island of Sea Women because she focuses on this aspect of Korean culture on this specific island, Jeju, that I knew nothing about. And it's that in this society, the women do the work, and the work they do is diving. That is woven through the story in such interesting ways. It's just something that so many readers will know absolutely nothing about, and it is a fascinating setting for a book. And then she plunks these characters in it that you just really care about what happens to them and the turns and twists their lives make and the things that they can't help and then the choices that they are forced to make. It's just, there's a lot there. It's really fun. It almost sounds a little Fiona Davis-like, you know, the starting contemporary and then backtracking through flashbacks. That sounds really interesting too, Anne. There's not as much of a contemporary storyline, but I see what you mean. If you like that change in perspective, it does offer that. Okay, we're going to get a little bit longer and go to a Barbara Kingsolver novel. Have you read the Poisonwood Bible? Yes. Okay, did you love it? I did. Okay, so totally on the right track. Yes. So what I like about this one for you and what I hope you enjoyed about it was that sweeping saga, lots going on. She manages to address really significant issues in really zoomed in up close ways. Her attention to detail is so amazing. I mean, do you remember about the Betty Crocker cake mixes? I remember that. I, you know, I'm fearful of snakes. And so. Oh, I forgot about the snakes. So I have always wondered or had thoughts about missionary work. And I think she brought to light some of my concerns with missionary work. 
and I'm not against missionaries either. Um, I just think that we have to be thoughtful. And I think she does a lovely way of addressing kind of the same questions I have through that book. Some people don't like that book, but I really enjoyed it. Well, there's no universal opinion on any book, but I thought this was incredibly well done. And it's the story, like you said, of a Southern Baptist missionary from Bethlehem, Georgia, who moves to the African Congo with his wife and four daughters. And it's 1959. They take everything they think they'll need, including those cake mixes and those the seeds and the things that are specific to their culture that do not translate into the Congo. The title is brilliant. The story is told in flashbacks. Oh, it's I think this is one of her best. You know, now that you said that, that that book has some Pat Conroy-esque family dynamics and the dad especially. I read that a while ago, but I, I really enjoyed it. Next, I want to talk about a book that you actually mentioned earlier, and that is A Prayer for Owen Meany by John Irving. Now, I think The World According to Garp could also be one that you really like, but let's go with Owen Meany, especially because you already mentioned that it was one you've been thinking about for a long time. And here's something else that's really funny about this book. Much like Beach Music, when Owen Meany came out in 1989, the critics were like, overwrought, overwritten, this is just too over the top. You and I, I imagine, both know tons of readers who say, this is my favorite book of all time. And they really don't care what the critics said in 1989. I mean, do you know people who love and adore this book? Yeah, I actually own it. It's on my shelf because um, one of my bookies' daughters, who reads a lot, she told her mom, Mom, if Natalie hasn't read this, you should get this book for her. And so, yeah, I have a hardback version on my to-be-read physical shelf in my library. Yes, yes. I think this will be a good one for you because it has so many of the same elements that you said you really enjoyed in the books that you loved. My introduction to John Irving, I think, is very appropriate here. I had a high school teacher who loved, I think specifically, The World According to Garp. But he said, here's the thing about John Irving. You start reading the story and he starts introducing these pieces and he sets them in motion. And some of them you go, oh, you're going to do something with that later. And some of them you don't even realize the significance. But then he brings them together in a way you don't expect, yet at the same time go, of course. And I thought, well, I want to see how he does that. As you can imagine, it revolves around Owen Meany, who's this larger than life character which the critics hated, and I'm pretty sure you're going to be just fine with. <laughs> so when the story opens, it's the 50s, in New England, is summertime. Owen Meany and the narrator of this story are both 11-year-olds, they're best friends, they're playing Little League at the park, and Owen Meany hits a foul ball. What happens next is a tragedy. But Owen Meany doesn't believe in coincidence or chance. He believes that that happened for a reason, and it happened through him for a reason. The way Irving writes about the world the boys are in, you watch them grow over decades. So it has that sweep and heft that you like in your stories. What's happening in these individuals' lives, what's happening in the United States, it all matters and is there on the page. And the book has these spiritual and philosophical undertones that are not made explicit, but very much present. This isn't like Mrs. Dalloway. You will not miss it here as a reader especially because of how and why you loved beach music, I think that Irving does many of the same things. And I think you're going to love it for the same reason. And for readers who've read John Irving before and been like, eh, 
not really my thing. I will say that just because you read and loved or read and hated one John Irving novel doesn't mean you'll feel that way about the rest. Even people who love Owen Meany will be like, eh, on some of his other works. But Owen Meany and Garp also are among his best. I think, I think I'm in good company when I say that. I think it sounds a little like fate that I have it on my physically to be read bookshelf in my library. So <laughs> that is a very Owen Meany kind of thing to say, Natalie. Yes. All right. Finally, we're piling too many books on your list, but you have these long books on yourself, so we can just keep piling, right? Yes. But I am going to stop here. I think you're really going to enjoy I Know This Much Is True by Wally Lamb. What do you know about it? I'm trying to think if I read a Wally Lamb book. Was it She's Come Undone? Yes, that's the one I read. Yes. And I liked that one a lot. Oh, that was a little much for me. Do you ever, though, have books that you like because you remember the period of time you read them in? I was a nursing student at Iowa and we were on a study abroad in Jamaica. And I was at this Jamaican hospital. There's not a whole lot to do when you're not doing the nursing And I remembered reading another really long book on that trip. Yes. You know how they say that you smell, I don't know, cinnamon on the stove and all of a sudden you're back in your grandmother's kitchen. I think that books can be the same way for readers. You see a cover and you're like, oh, I remember exactly where I was and what I was doing when I finished that book. Yeah. Let me tell you about, I know this much is true. Okay. First of all, it's 900 pages. This is not one of those books where you're going to be like, I didn't even notice it was long because on my bookshelf, it takes up three times as much space as the books before and after it. But because it is long, Lamb has space to tell you detailed long-term stories about many different characters in his book and in his town and the way they overlap. This story opens in a library. And if you're about to get excited about that. It opens in a library with a really sinister scene that introduces the mental illness that is so present and such a driving factor in this story. It's interesting. The title actually comes from the final paragraphs of the book, and it really ends on a hopeful note, but oh wow, it's hard to get there. And by hard, I mean the characters go through hard things, not like, oh my gosh, this is such a slog as a reader. I thought this was just a heck of a page turner for a nearly 1,000 page book. So this is the story of two brothers that are born into a big, messy, complicated family. One of the brothers is schizophrenic and the other is basically his brother's keeper. So throughout the book, he has this problem of trying to hold his own life together, which is enough for one man to do so while he also feels like it's his responsibility to make sure his schizophrenic twin stays safe. And if he could be happy and well-adjusted, that would be a bonus. But safety is an overarching concern. And it takes the story in so many different directions. This is a challenging read emotionally. And there are, as I said, hard things that happen. But I think he does such an incredible job themes he weaves in, the characters from the community he pulls into the twins' story. There's a love story in this book that is complicated, and he talks about issues that are hard and heavy in ways you don't expect to see. I think you're going to like the way that he makes those big issues that really give the story a pleasant weight, you know, a feeling that it matters, a really intimate way to approach them through these characters that you get to know so well over the course of such a sweeping story. 
the schizophrenia mental health um, sounds fascinating, but did you ever feel like that started to become like too much during the reading process or was there enough other things going on that that didn't start to become like a nails on the chalkboard kind of reading experience? This story is told by the twin who does not have schizophrenia. And while helping or attempting to help his brother is an ever-present issue in his life, it's not the only thing that happens in the story. And I think that's one of the reasons I like this as a long book is because there's room in 900 pages for so much more to happen. It sounds very complex, you know. um, (laughs) No, you're going to love it. I don't want you to sound (laughs) half-hearted. I have added it to my TBR and I I trust you and um, I'm sure I will enjoy it. Longer books, then the author has to do a better job of keeping it interesting for me. I think he's going to do it. But if I'm wrong, you know, I wanted to have that conversation with you as well. Okay. (laughs) All right, Natalie, here are the books we talked about today. Let's see if I can remember them all. We talked about Pachinko by Min Jin Lee, The Poisonwood Bible by Barbara Kingsolver, which you already read and loved. We talked about A Prayer for Owen Meany by John Irving, and I Know This Much is True by Wally Lamb. Natalie, of those books, what do you think you'll read next? I think I will probably start with The Prayer for Owen Meany. Well, I can't wait to hear what you think. Thanks so much for talking books with me today. Thanks, Anne. Hey readers, I hope you enjoyed my discussion with Natalie, and I'd love to hear what you think she would enjoy reading next. I also want to hear what your definition of a long book is. Visit our comment section at what should I read next podcast.com slash 173. That's 173. And that page is where you'll find the full list of titles we talked about today. You can follow Natalie's year of reading long books on her blog. I'm chattynatty.blogspot.com and on Instagram at Natalie Van Wanning. That's Natalie Van V-A-N Wanning, W-A-N-I-N-G. Next week, I'm talking to Australian reader Kate Daly about how she found her way out of a planet-sized reading rut. Here's a sneak peek. You said something about having extricated yourself from a reading rut that went all the way to China. I think it might have gone further from China, probably to another planet. (laughs) What happened? How did you get in such a sad readerly state? When I got to sort of in the middle of my 20s, I, I remember thinking, I don't enjoy reading anymore. I pick up books because it's a habit, not because I'm actually you know, want to escape or it's just because I'm bored maybe or I just, and, and then I put the book down and I completely forget it. And I was like, oh man, this is bad. Maybe I'm one of those adults that grow out of reading. Subscribe now so you don't miss a beat or a book in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and more. We will see you next week. If you're on Twitter, let me know there at Ann Bogle. That is Anne with an E, B is in books, O-G-E-L. Tag us on Instagram to share what you are reading. You can find me there at Ann Bogle and at What Should I Read Next. Our newsletter subscribers are the first to know all the What Should I Read Next news and happenings. If you're not on the list, you can fix that right now by visiting whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash newsletter to sign up for our free weekly delivery. If you enjoy this podcast and want to support it, please share it with a friend, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, or buy or borrow a copy of my new book I'd rather be reading for yourself or a friend. Thanks to the people who make the show happen, What Should I Read Next is produced by Brenna Frederick with sound design by Kellen Pekacek. 
Readers, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And as Reiner Maria Rilke said, ah, how good it is to be among people who are reading. Happy reading, everyone.